I don't want to be one of these people, like I kind of call the Pope's planers, where you try to minimize the damage, minimize the scandal, act like it's really, if we just whiteboard it here, we'll see it's really not that bad. It's bad. Hey, my friends, you know, very often in the church, we are led by a lot of soldiers, a lot of soldiers who I was just at a dinner. I was so surprised to see this was a dinner of pro-life, pro-family leaders, leaders in the fight for the faith. They were there to honor Bishop Schneider. It was in Washington, D.C. And uh, they went around the room and asked, how many are converts? Wow. Like half the room put their hands up. My next guest is one of those converts um, from a long time ago. But you can see by the proliferation of his works of writing and of teaching that uh, he's been an absolute stunning worker for the Lord. Um, and it's not a, a conversion like a Pauline conversion from someone persecuting the church so much. He came in from Methodism, but he right now is one of these voices in the church providing sanity. He's a layman uh, who has just been a true gift to the church today. His name is Eric Sammons. You would probably know him from his show, from his being editor over at Crisis Magazine. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Hello, dear LifeSite viewers. We are living in a moment of truth. Each day we encounter the evils of the woke agenda, especially during this month of June, as the woke corporations, they continue to infiltrate our homes via the media. Now this month, the mainstream media works over time to spread false teaching and make a mockery of traditional families and the Christian values we hold most dear. But look around. Look at the pushback against Bud Light and Target. People are finally starting to wake up and they're actually looking. They're looking for the clarity and answers. So this is our moment to give the world what they need so desperately, the truth. We have a golden opportunity right now. There's a surge of interest and we need to jump on it to give the public the truth on life, faith, family, and freedom that they so desperately need. But you know what? We can't do that without you. We are in the midst of a quarterly summer fundraising campaign and we are in need of your support, both prayerful and financial. We must raise a minimum of 500000 before June 30th. So please donate at the link in the description below and be on the lookout as LifeSite will be on the road during this month of June, heading to Los Angeles, to Chicago, to Washington, D.C., all to shed the light of truth during this critical time. Thank you so much for your prayers and for your support and your dedication. Let's take advantage of this moment and by the grace of God, may our efforts serve him and his truth. And may that bear much fruit. For LifeSite News, this is John Henry Weston. May God bless you. Eric, great to have you on the program. Oh, it's so good to be here. I, I just want to say, first of all, I love the work you're doing. I love uh, LifeSite News. I mean, just all, everything you're doing is just great. And I just want to commend you for it. And thank you. And thank you, frankly, from lots of people I hear from as well, who may often mention your name and the work you're doing. I, I just think it's great. Thanks, God. Let's begin as we always do, with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. So, Eric, you are um, a man of great, great faith. But if you wouldn't mind taking us back, and I know it's a long time ago, but um, 
like many of the soldiers in the church today who are fighting for Christ and his truth in the midst of what really does seem like a war, um, tell us a little bit about your entering the church and uh, how you got there. Sure. So like you said, it was a long time ago. 30 years ago this year is when I was in, uh, I received into the church. And really what happened was, is I was a uh, evangelical Protestant. In high school, I had a conversion experience where I did an altar call, accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And in hindsight, looking at it, I know it was an emotional moment. I know it wasn't sacramental, but it was a real moment of grace. I really do think God moved me at that time because it really did change the trajectory of my life. So I went off to college, very much on fire for the Lord. I joined uh, Camp Crusade for Christ, which I think they've changed their name to Crusade or, or no, to something else now. <laughs> and But it was it's a very prominent evangelical Protestant college organization. They call it a parachurch organization. But what happened was, is early on in college, I got involved with the pro-life movement. And it, it was at a large state uh, university, and the pro-life group was small, but it was all, all the core members were Catholic except for me because I got very involved in it. And I was the only Protestant with a, it was about eight of us, about seven Catholics and me. We would go to the local abortion clinic and pray uh, in front of it. They would pray the rosaries. I'd stand there either twiddling my thumbs or holding the Bible or something like that while they prayed their rosaries. Uh, we, we got involved in uh, Operation Rescue. We did, we got very intensely involved. And during all these activities, uh, I really started, first of all, to feel a discomfort at my denominational affiliation, which was United Methodist. Uh, that's what I grew up in. So I was baptized in, confirmed in the United Methodist Church. My parents were and everything. Uh, but the United Methodist Church is pro-abortion. And, uh, and I was just like, I cannot be a member of a church that thinks it's okay to kill babies. That's, that can't be a church of Christ. So I was looking for another denomination. Now, in my mind, another Protestant denomination, Southern Baptist, maybe a non-denominational, something that I could feel be pro-life and be a member of that, that organization. But at the same time I'm thinking this, I'm hanging out with a bunch of Catholics and they're all uh, on fire for their faith, great Catholic uh, young men and women. And so of course, as, as most members of pro-life movement know, we got involved in a lot of debates, discussions about Protestant Catholic. I really started to look into the, the claims of Catholicism, and I was at the same time troubled with uh, my own denominational background. And I remember one day, went up to my, my good friend, who eventually became my sponsor in the church, and I just said to him, how can you know, how can you know that the Catholic Church won't change its position on abortion someday? And I asked that because of the fact that I knew if I jumped to the Southern Baptist, who's to say they won't change? And now I have to jump again. I didn't want to keep jumping. And so I was like, how do you know? And I'll never forget this because we we're I can I remember where we were standing on campus. We we're outside on the sidewalk when I asked him this. And he looked at me with a look that just said, That's the dumbest question I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and it was a it was somewhat of a um of some of a pride in the Catholic Church. He was just like, I just know. I just know it won't. And I knew he did just know that. And I was like, I want that. Hmm. I want that certainty that I will belong to a church that will not change. Now, that's not like I converted that moment. In fact, my sister, I remember she asked me like, you're not going to become Catholic, are you? Because she saw I was hanging out with the Catholics. It's like, oh no, there's no chance I will. And I meant, of course, a month later, I decided to convert, but <laughs> I didn't know God had, you know, it was laughing this whole time. So yeah, so it really was 
the consistency and the uh, of the Catholic Church, its its strong moral stance. Remember, at this time, John Paul II was the Pope, and and he this is something he was very good on, very good on that moral certainty that the Church's teachings do not change, that our teaching on against abortion will never change. This is what we believe, and this is why we believe it. And so that was very attractive to me. And so in the end. And there's, you know, our lady obviously was involved as she always is. And she's the one who, who brought me in over the finish line, so to speak. And then I decided, I was like, okay, I got to do this. I got to become Catholic. And so in Easter 1993, I was receiving the church and it was the greatest decision, decision, decision I ever made. A lot of people say, you know, like the greatest decision was like marrying your wife, something like that. And I told my wife, I was like, it was awesome that, you know, I, I married you, but it is second place to becoming Catholic. She's like, oh, I hope so. <laughs> she, of course, she wasn't even interested in me until I became Catholic. She was one of those Catholic pro-lifers in the, in the pro-life group. Oh, wow. And she was in the group and we were just friends. And it wasn't until after I decided to become Catholic, she's like, okay, this guy might actually be interesting to date now. <laughs> she was, <laughs> she was raised well. So she didn't, then she was like, okay, maybe this guy. So awesome. Oh, that's so beautiful. What you say resonates so much with me. Um, everybody knows the March for Life in Washington, D.C. What they might not know is the after party for the leaders who are there. So lots of pro-life leaders, we work like crazy. Uh, the day of the march is insane. The night before was already crazy. Uh, and the night before is taken up with the vigil and, and you, you got to get to sleep. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to function the next day. But the next day after the march, there is a time to unwind. And everybody goes to this same pub and if you go around the same pub, no one's talking pro-life anymore. Everybody is doing apologetics. It is so funny because there's Catholics <laughs> and Protestants and they're all there. And every table you go to, there's different versions of apologetics. And that's where Abby Johnson became Catholic. Uh, there's so Reggie Littlejohn became Catholic. I mean, so much of this there. It's it, what it was called the pro-life movement is the greatest ecumenical movement uh, in the world today. Uh, Absolutely. Just, just beautiful. And I'm not a fan, you know, the funny thing, I'm not a fan of most ecumenical work in the church today. I, I think a lot of it doesn't really help the mission of the mm -hmm. church, but I will say the the practical ecumenism of working together with Protestants and others on something that we have a shared belief in, like the pro-life goal against abortion, I think is very worthwhile. And God uses it very much with myself and with many others to bring us to the fullness of the truth. Amen to that. So... You come at things very much like I do. We were reared under John Paul II. I remember in the beginning days of, of LifeSight, you know, we were reporting so much on John Paul II because he said this and that and this on the same day. And it was like, that's worth three stories, but that's a bit excessive. So, you know, it was it was a problem that he was so pro-life. It was like every day yeah. something, not only new, something stupendous and, and great. So anyway... Uh, a different kind of a challenge than we experience nowadays. I remember back in the day, too, my my um, girlfriend at the time, evangelical, too, and uh, evangelizing with her doing apologetics, saying the same thing as your friends did with that look of things will never, ever change. We know they'll never change. Um, and under JP2, there was that. You, you had bad bishops. You had bishops who were against even the pro-life movement. But you always knew the Pope had your back. It was the same uh, after JP2 died and under Pope Benedict. But there's been a radical shift. There's been a radical shift that I think a lot of Catholics thought couldn't even be possible. And I'm not talking about 
one single heresy like in the days of the Arian heresy. I'm not talking about the Borgia popes, which were horrible for manifest infidelity, sexual infidelity and whatnot. Arguably, that could be much easier to deal with than what we're dealing with today regarding Pope Francis, because it does seem that things are going in an opposite direction. The example, especially of the Pontifical Academy for Life, which you'd think would be the pro-life arm of the church. So there we have a veritable reverse in direction. You have a group that used to always push for life, pushing in the opposite direction. You have them removing pro-life members, inviting members who are against life, headed by an archbishop who's done very strange things, also in the, uh, you know, institute, the John Paul II Institute, and what is to be done. Did that shake your faith? What are people to make of that? It's a great question because my own story from 30 years ago, would it resonate today if a young Catholic told a young Protestant who asked the same question, Oh, I just would he, first of all, would he even say, I just know the church won't change. And if he did, would the Protestant think that that was even viable? Might just think, well, obviously you look at death penalty, look at, you know, these other, like you're, like you said, the Pontifical Academy for life. It might not, I, I definitely think it might not resonate. I, I don't want to be one of these people like what I kind of call the Pope splainers where you try to minimize the damage, minimize the scandal, act like it's really, if we just whiteboard it here, we'll see it's really not that bad. It's bad. And I don't think we should act like it's not. Now, personally, I have no, it's not really ever shaken my faith. And I think the reason, I mean, God's grace is obviously the reason, and we can't uh, uh, diminish that. I would say, though, that kind of the human reason is I have done a lot of studying of history and, and church history in particular. And whereas I would agree that Pope Francis does appear to be a unique problem historically, like the way in which he is uh, harming souls, if I might speak bluntly, is a bit, um, is different than what we've seen in the past. Like you mentioned, you know, the Renaissance popes, and, and, and they're a real scandal. I mean, the story goes that Martin Luther went to Rome and he was so scandalized about what he saw there with with how terrible it was that it really did impact him greatly. Um, and look at what happened then. And of course, Arians, the the, the pornocracy of the, the papacy in the in the 10th century, these are real things that are really a problem. This is different in that we have a pope who almost single-handedly is trying to undermine a lot of the fundamentals of what we believe to be the faith. Now, and I will I will admit my own views have shifted. Under JP2 and under Benedict, I'll be the first to admit that I did have a tendency to say, ah, the Pope says, so therefore the conversation's over. That's not good apologetics. And I, I will be the first to say, yes, I did that as well. Uh, it was always great to that the Pope had our back. And we love that. And even when in the midst of terrible bishops, because, hey, but Pope John Paul said this or Pope Benedict said that. But really, that is bad apologetics, because ultimately what I had to do, what, what, what it was for me was it was a deepening of my understanding of the faith, really trying to dive into, OK, how do I reconcile 
church teaching on the papacy, infallibility of the Pope, universal jurisdiction, the uh, de, um, Lumen Gentium state in Vatican II stating that uh, we must give uh, assent of mind and will to the, to the Pope and all these things. How do I reconcile that with the reality I see? I refuse to act like the reality isn't happening. Because I think too many times you, you hear certain Catholic apologists and, and, and uh, more celebrities want to just deny the reality around us, which is that Pope Francis is leading people astray. He is saying things that are contrary to the Catholic faith, period, end of story. So how do I reconcile it all? There are different ways we can. One is, of course, you go the Sede Vicontinus route. You just say, okay, he's not the Pope. And whereas I 100% reject that and... I really get annoyed personally by the way they act on the internet. Um, the fact is I do at least understand the 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 um, issues that led people to that. That's one route you can go. You can go the route of the kind of the where Peter is crowd where you just act like, well, whatever the Pope says today is, is Catholic dogma. Doesn't matter what the Pope said five minutes ago. All we're going to do is do what the Pope says today. That you're leaving your brain at the door. Um, and so I really was like, okay, how do we reconcile that? And I, I think, and I'm not claiming to have all the answers, but my reconciliation of it is, is that when I look at the promises of Christ to St. Peter, the promises he makes to the church, he does not guarantee that we can't have a Pope like this. He does not ever promise that. And in fact, I think it's a, a means in which people are really tried and tested and, and said, okay, will you follow me? Our Lord is saying, even when my vicar is doing things that are that are are against what I want him to do, will you still be faithful to me and to my church? And ultimately, that's what we have to hang our hat on. I don't claim to have all the answers. Like I've like in my brain, it's one hundred percent figured out. But it is enough for me to to say that okay, all the things I believed in, which I decided to accept when I became Catholic, are all still true. They're not playing out like I expected, but they're all still true. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to let this this guy in Rome, even though he's the Pope, shake me from that attachment to the Catholic Church I have. I mean, I'm going to die as a Catholic, and it it doesn't matter what he might do that might uh, go against or at least undermine the faith of many and undermine uh, the, the 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 preaching of the gospel. Beautiful. Have you envisioned something? It's This is an odd question, perhaps, but let me ask it anyway. So there is a contingent of people who would regard you because you are open and honest about Pope Francis and what he's doing and the harm to the faith would suggest you're anti-Catholic. There could come a day, because we are in a day where there's already a cancel culture in a big way. Priests are being laicized for speaking out particularly against Pope Francis, um, for pointing out errors, especially like death penalty in the catechism and, and things like this, suspended, some excommunicated. It's not yet happened on the level of the laity, um, but there's, you know, a lot of speculation that it might. What would you say? You're prominent in the field, you are uh, editor of magazine. You are, you know, very publicly Catholic. What if your bishop threatened you with excommunication? What would you make of that? How would you feel about that? I would first of all take it very seriously. 
because I do believe that Christ established a visible church and he established the bishops as our shepherds and that in all ways possible, we should follow them. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I, my understanding of obedience, I take from St. Thomas Aquinas that where is it his sphere of authority that the authority has to have, uh, you know, his sphere of authority. Um, he can't obviously uh, command anything that's sin, something like that. But if, for example, my bishop were to contact me and say, you know, you, I'm, I'm threatening you with excommunication, essentially, if, if you don't toe the line, I would in all ways possible try to obey that and not be excommunicated because I don't, that's not a joke. It's not, it's not something to just laugh off or act like it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. You don't want to be excommunicated. Now we know in history, St. Joan of Arc, for example, is excommunicated. She died next weekend. Now she's a canonized saint. So, and I, I believe Archbishop Lefebvre of the Society of St. Pius X, um, you know, I don't think his excommunication, he died next weekend, but I would not look upon him as somebody, I think one day he'll be canonized a saint, frankly. Um, long time from now, potentially, but one day. Um, so I would, but I would take it very seriously and I would do an everything possible to follow what my bishop asked me to do. Now, if he asked me to say something like black was white, like if he asked me to, if he said, you have to write a retraction of something you really believe about Pope Francis, and, and I really believed it, and I, I prayed about it and thought, I wouldn't do that, and I would try to explain to him and, and do the best I could to make it clear uh, why I, I, I believe myself to be a faithful Catholic, um, but I would try to even follow his direction as, as best I could. Um, because I do think that's important. Um, we can't act like they're, I, I see too many Catholics on kind of who are in our sphere that I think are a little too cavalier towards the bishops. I know they're doing a terrible job. I talk about it all the time, but they're still the bishops that Christ, you know, that ultimately answer to Christ. And we're supposed to look to them as our shepherds. So I can't say without knowing exactly what he would ask me to do in order to mm -hmm. avoid excommunication. But at the same time, I'll put it this way. I would do everything possible to follow his dictates only if he were asking me to go against my conscience that I would pray about and make sure was properly formed, would I, would I not obey what he asked me to do? Hey friends, this July, we at LifeSite are celebrating 25 years of service to life, faith, family, and freedom with a gala in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So especially for those of you who couldn't join us in the United States, LifeSite is gathering our whole team and a few very special guests in the pro-life and pro-family movement for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity at our newly announced 25th anniversary Canadian gala. LifeSite's star video reporter Jim Hale will be there with an on-stage special with the 16-year-old Canadian pro-family hero, Josh Alexander. Experience LifeSite's Faith and Reason show live with Father James Altman and Liz Yor. You'll be able to interact with our reporters from all over the world, including U.S. Bureau Chief Doug Mainwaring, Canadian reporter Anthony Murdoch, and Rome correspondent Michael Haynes. You'll also hear keynotes from LifeSite co-founder Steve Jelsevac and myself. So RSVP for the 25th anniversary Canadian Gala now. And don't miss the opportunity to get a live, in-person, studio experience of LifeSite's top news show that broadcasts every Friday at 8 p.m., Faith and Reason. Seating is very limited, so RSVP and get your tickets today for LifeSite's 25th anniversary Canadian Gala in the beautiful Hilton Toronto Markham Hotel this July 18th.
To buy tickets for the 25th anniversary Canadian Gala, visit gala25can.lifesitenews.com. I look forward to seeing you there. God bless you. So let's talk about Pope Francis for a minute. What is your take on Pope Francis? In other words, not not the take on his theology generally, but just on Pope Francis as a person. Do you hate him? Do you love him? Do you do you are you ambivalent? Are you sort of like, oh, I'm just going to ignore him? What's your take? Well, he's the Holy Father, and I'm commanded to love my father, honor my father, and I think that includes loving your father. I think you should, everybody should love the father, even a father who's abusive. They should love. Now, of course, loving somebody isn't that modern sense of we have to have good feelings towards that person all the time or or do whatever they ask, whatever. But the idea is that I do love him. I pray for him every day. Uh, I pray for him multiple times a day, frankly. And uh, and I think that ultimately, I just think he's a bad pope. I mean, I, I, that's the simplest way to put it. I just don't think he does his job well. Uh, and that's kind of a crass way to put it, but I really do think that's that's ultimately what it comes down to, that he's not, he is handed something when he becomes Pope, he's handed the deposit of faith, and, and he is told one thing, keep this to the next person. <laughs> it's a relay race. That's what the Popes are involved in. I mean, all of us are in a sense, but the Popes are involved in a relay race. One hands the baton on the other. The baton is at deposit of faith. The only thing they're supposed to do is just hold on to that baton and hand on to the next Pope. They're not supposed to try to paint it or create a new baton or anything like that. They're just handed on to the next one. And I feel like he's dropping the baton. In fact, he's trying to change what it looks like and, and do things like that. And so ultimately, I pray for him that he would be uh, faithful to his vocation as pope to hand on that tradition, that deposit of faith on to the next, uh, the next pope, the next generation. And I don't think I think he's failing to do that. But I, I definitely love him in the sense of he is my father. He's the Holy Father. And so uh, I, I love him in that sense. And I pray for him and you know, I, I, it's easy. The easy way out is just to say, I, I kind of hope for the next Pope to come soon, who's better. But ultimately, the best thing that could happen would be for him to really have a conversion to where he recognizes what his role is. I mean, think of how powerful that would be. To basically, one day we wake up, he shows up at the balcony at St. Peter's and says, hey, guys, guess what? We're not going to do it like we've been doing it. I was wrong in the past. We're going to stick to the tradition. We're going to allow the celebration of Latin Mass more, all these things. That would be much greater than just simply him one day passing away. We get another Pope who might be better or might be worse. That's what we really pray for is, is that he would be the Holy Father he is called to be. Amen to that. So do I. I mean, I kid you not. I. It would be a Pauline kind of conversion because in a real, real sense— Pope Francis is like Saul persecuting the church, persecuting the faithful. It, it's a it's a figurative dragging people out of their homes and having them killed, mm -hmm. uh, in, in in very real ways, and and killing not so much even the bodies as the souls, and it's even more deadly. So I do hope similarly for his conversion. Bishop Schneider says, "Pray for the Pope's conversion," so. and so we do that at LifeSite every single day with great love. Yeah. And, and I just want to say, actually, yeah. And I just want to say a quick story about how you're talking about him persecuting. Some people might hear that and be like, wow, that's pretty harsh language. But just as an example, and I get many of these, I'm sure you get many of these. I had a uh, Protestant recently contact me who is very interested in Catholicism, seriously considering it. And he, his stumbling block is Pope Francis. 
Mm-hmm. He just says, you know, and and I, I he knows he knows Catholicism pretty well, and he's very attracted to. He's looking at orthodoxy as well, and he but he's he's he really does think there is a supposed to be a bishop of a, a, a successor Saint Peter, mm-hmm. but he just says with like, Pachamama with everything he's just like I just can't do it, um, and I understand that. Of course, I, I talked to him about it, and I, I sent him to some people smarter than me who could help him out as well. Um, but the point is, those are real souls. Those are real people who are, their salvation is in jeopardy because of the actions of Pope Francis. I don't know a better way to put it than that. And that's why this is serious. And that's why I feel like we have to sometimes speak out about it because there's actual souls that are in danger of eternal damnation if we don't speak out about it. And I don't see how you can't take that as the most serious thing in the world. And yes, I know we can't be down on all, all the time. We have to have our times to relax and kind of, you know, but the fact is, this is this is serious business of what we're talking about. It might call me crazy, but I'm still hopeful for such a conversion. Not that there's any indication. In fact, every indication is the other way. But um, I don't know. I, I had a little uh, encounter with the Lord where I thought something was weird. It was when... Pope Francis canceled uh, one of these great, great bishops, Bishop Finn. Um, I knew the Mother Superior who had come to Rome to to um, fight for Bishop Finn in her diocese. And uh, I called her up with my condolences that she had lost a great father and the church had lost a great father. Um, and uh, had that's where I had that thought about Saul, about persecuting the church and just the recovation that Pope Francis was doing. I kid you not, I got to the Mass. I was walking on the way to Mass doing that, calling the Mother Spirit. And uh, got to Mass, and the reading was on the conversion of Paul. And I was just like, wow. So ever since then, this years and years ago, I, um, I've i continued to have that weird hope. Do you have any hope for that yourself? I mean, I have to, first of all, because I, I really do believe that God can do anything, and we have to believe that. And... I mean, obviously there's no outward signs and I, you know, I think we all have people in our life personally that are loved ones that we see no outward signs of their, they, they've, they've gone down a path that is destructive to them. We see nothing that can, can, that indicates they are going to turn around from it, but we still have hope. Why? Because we love them and we want what's best for them. And I think the same thing is true of Pope Francis. We want what's best for him, which of course will then be best for the church. And so, yeah, I do have hope. Uh, I mean, the hour's getting late. He's not a young man. He's been Pope for 10 years now. Um, but that's the thing about God is he can he can pull that rabbit out of the hat. <laughs> I mean, he can do anything he wants. And and so I really do believe, I think we should have that hope. Uh, in fact, I think it's important to have, have that hope because when we're doing work that's critical of him, when we're saying things negative of him, if we don't have hope, then we can fall into that destructive type of criticism that is just trying to tear him down. If we, if we believe it is possible, which we should, then I think our prayers for him are more efficacious, they're more powerful. And I think our work when we when we criticize him, we're, when, when we are saying things he's doing wrong is actually more powerful because we're doing it out of that sense of, we're doing it out of a sense of fraternal correction that hopefully he would turn around. Yeah. In a way, I was that guy before my conversion I was on the other side in a, in a, ma- a nasty, mean way. And maybe it's like you, too, one month before deciding in Catholicism, no, I won't do that. <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> Not a chance. 
certainly seems like not a chance to the outside world today. Right. Re Pope Francis becoming embracing the faith, but let's hope and pray. God is a God of miracles, uh, surprises, as Pope Francis would say. Yes, that's right. That would be the greatest surprise. <laughs> that would be. <laughs> now, oh. you are like me. I mean, you're you're aware of a ton of the hell that's going on outside the church, inside the church, in the culture, in your country of the United States. It's really dire. But you're smiling. What's the basis of those smiles? And tell us a little bit, if, you, if you're open to it, about your family as well. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a, the job I have, the job you have, is not, and I don't want anybody feeling sorry for us, but it's not always an easy one because you do have this danger of getting consumed by what's going on. And I've been in the midst of it long enough. I mean, I worked for a diocese for a number of years on the inside, so I saw it there. And you see how much, how much destruction is going on, how many souls are being lost, and how most people are rejecting God. And so it can be very easy to then get into a, a, uh, a very uh, depressive mode about it. But honestly, what I, I do personally is, is I do make sure I see the good that's going on. In my parish, for example, we've seen dramatic growth over the past few years. A lot of people in traditional Latin mass, a lot of people coming to it, falling in love with it, really understanding and discovering their faith again. Uh, we have a lot of young people who have started coming to our parish, very attracted to the traditional Latin mass. I mean, for example, in my parish alone, this calendar year, I think we've had four engagements of, of couples getting engaged. And I, my own uh, daughter recently got married. I have another daughter about to get married to, to great young men, Catholic men. Um, and I see that. I mean, I was just at Steubenville recently for my daughter's graduation. And it was just you, you see these young people who they really do believe. They really do have a, a strong faith. And yes, they're going to be potentially they're going to be very much outnumbered out in the world. But you see God working. I see it in baptisms. You know, my daughter, my another daughter, I got a lot of daughters, you can tell. Another daughter uh, received her first communion recently. And you see these beautiful little souls being prepared for Christ and receiving our Lord in, in first communion. If we really have the eyes to see, we would know that a young soul receiving her first communion with her pure heart is more important, is more important in heaven's eyes than some bishop who says something stupid or, or Father James Martin doing something dumb or something like that. Like the joy of that one first communion, her holy communion is, is, is so great and so profound. And so I think that's the key is keep that balance, recognize that balance between, yes, all these terrible things are going on in the world. Man is doing everything we can to reject God. But God is still going through all of that and still reaching, like my, my daughter at her first communion, my other daughter, her wedding, these, these couples getting engaged. I mean, all these, all these people coming into the traditional Latin mass in recent years, all these things are God's way of saying, you can fight against me, but I see souls that are yearning for me, and I'm going to reach out to them, and you can't stop me from doing that. And that's the key, too, is no bishop, no pope can stop God. When he wants to reach a soul for him, He's going to do it. If they're open to it, he, he, he can't be stopped. Beautiful. What's your family makeup like? So I have seven kids. I have six daughters and one son. The, the wow. son is right. Yeah, the son is right in the middle. He's blessed among <laughs> women, we like to say. And uh, 
fact, when he was growing up, I always told people like he's either going to make a great husband or a great priest because <laughs> either way he's got, you know, a lot of uh, experience dealing with, with the, with the ladies. And uh, yeah. So, and my, um, my oldest is, how old is she now? 26. I think I, if I got that wrong, she'll tell me at some point. Um, my youngest is eight. Uh, and, 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 you know, we have like every family, we have our ups and downs, but they're, they're wonderful children. I've been married for almost 28 years now. My wife, like I said, I knew her before I was even Catholic and, and, um, you know, she was a great example. I mean, I didn't become Catholic because of her. I wasn't even dating her. Um, but just her faithfulness is an ordinary Catholic. I mean, I don't think she'll be insulted when I say that. Like, like, in fact, I have a great story of this when I was Protestant still. We were at a at a uh in front of an abortion clinic praying. And it was getting it was kind of rough back then. So the police were there and because things were kind of crazy back then, and and they were kind of keeping us from having any problems, mostly the pro boards trying to attack us is what they really were were there for. And then the, the abortion clinic closed, and so the police left. But we decided, just felt called to keep praying, some of us pro-lifers. And they, most of the Catholic praying rosary, I was just doing whatever I was doing as a Protestant and some of the pro boards stayed and they were vile, uh, very uh, vile people. And in fact, this is one of the few times I looked in the eyes of one of them and I just knew that this person was possessed. And I, I would not say that, never said that by anybody else, but I knew, I just could tell this person, but looking in his eyes, he was possessed. And they started chanting some really vile things about us like, that I cannot say, um, but they were just things like throw them to the lions and, and things like that. And at one point I look over and there's one of the pro boards is standing over the woman who would eventually be my wife and mm. just a friend at this point. And she's on her knees praying the rosary. And this man is like standing over her and yelling vile things at her. And she just has this look of peace on her, on her um, face and she's praying the rosary. And I will say that was a major factor for me as well. Cause I was like, if that thing that she's holding can do that in that situation, I wanted to punch the guy right then. And of course, if he'd gone after, I probably would have had to do something, but I was like, if something's about that thing, she's holding that rosary she's holding is, is I don't know what it is, but Wow. And she doesn't even remember this. Like I, I told her later, I, I years later, I can't remember. I told her the story. She's like, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> but but that's, you know, that's my wife. So I, I've been very blessed is what I'm saying with uh, my wife and my kids. And so that does, I mean, clearly that that helps a lot that my, you know, when I'm finished work, I go up and my eight-year-old is like screaming at me, daddy, daddy. And like, you know, grabbing me, wants to play something. I mean, that that helps keep you from getting too concerned about everything, you know, getting too wrapped up in everything else going on. Yeah, I my life tracks so well with yours because my oldest is the same age. We've got eight, and my youngest is now eleven. And uh, I remember in the thick of the insanity, basically going up after work and changing diapers. It really right. grounds you, right? It does. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. <laughs> Nothing gets you more than that. I mean, and it's also great because like. You know, I work from home. I work in the basement and like I might be on the internet, you know, correcting somebody who's wrong on the internet. I'll walk up and, and like, hey, could you take out the trash? I mean, that's that's good. That's exactly the way it should be. <laughs> and it does remind you like, oh, you're not so important after all. You did. You got to go get the trash out here, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that is that's the important stuff. And that's um, right. What a what an absolutely beautiful thing. So. What's your. What's your message to Catholics these days? I mean, you do a lot of writing to Catholics, um, trying to, um, as, you, as you said, uh, they all feel gaslighted. Explain that to us 
What do you think is going on? And uh, what do Catholics need to hear? Yeah, I think that's something I think Catholics really need to remember is trust your Catholic instincts. You know, one of your guys, Kennedy Hall, says this often. Trust your, your, your Catholic instincts. If, if you hold on to the faith as it's been handed on to you through scripture, through tradition, uh, through the, 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 the teachings of the church over the centuries, you'll be fine, even if very influential and powerful Catholics are telling you otherwise, even if the, the highest office in the church is telling you otherwise, you'll be fine. That's the way you save your soul. You do the devotions of, you know, the... Um, of the church, the traditional devotion of the church. You, you, you pray the rosary, uh, you do processions, you, you, know, all the, you, you keep the ember days. If you do all of that, you will be saved. I mean, God promises that. And so you know, obviously in a sacramental setting, you're, you're going to confession regularly, going to the Holy Communion regularly. That's what you really need. To, that's the main focus. That should be the priority. And I, I say this all the time on my own podcast and, and everywhere I can is, you have to have a life of prayer. This is an era in which saints are raised. If you look at the worst times in church, fourth uh, century, the Arian crisis, if you look particularly at the 16th century, the Protestant crisis, those are eras of great saints. You have your St. Athanasius, your St. Uh, Gregory of, of Nazianzus, you know, all, all these guys in the fourth century. You have your Ignatius Loyola, Teresa of Avila, all Philip Neri in the 16th century. Why don't you be one of those people? I mean, that that's the thing is, that's what God is calling you to be, one of those people who... They're saints because they responded to a dire crisis in the church. They didn't run. They didn't hide. And instead they said, I'm going to fight. And by fighting, I don't mean you get a podcast like us or something like that. I mean, obviously, if God calls you to do it, I just mean by living your life as a faithful Catholic, being a great father, being a great mother, being a great worker in whatever you do, that's exactly how we overcome the crisis. And so I, I really feel like it is, I, I have my days where I, you know, I have the the same thoughts that everybody, every faithful Catholic has about what's going on. At the same time, though, I really feel like this is an opportunity to grow in, in holiness and, and sanctity. I know in my own life, I've lived in different places, and one of the worst places I've, I lived for my own faith, believe it or not, was when I lived in Steubenville, Ohio. <laughs> and I love Steubenville, love the people there. But I became just kind of like, uh, you know, I just, I didn't have any, any resistance and, and so I just kind of became lackadaisical. It wasn't until then I moved out to Washington, D.C. area. <laughs> and it was like, okay, now I got resistance in my face all the time. Now I'm like, I better be serious because I'll fall. I will. I have no chance of surviving if I don't go back to my efforts to pray, sacramental life, things like that. So I, I feel like, in a sense, Pope Francis is that gift. And, and the uh Prelates like Cardinal Supich and people like that are gifts to us in that they allow us to resist it in a in a Catholic and charitable way that hopefully will also foster and, and develop our own faith. I have so many questions for you. We don't have much time. Let me ask you one last question because you mentioned it, and I think it, it's important. I think perhaps for a lot of the converts from evangelicalism, Protestantism, whatever, they understand Scripture in a way that some Catholics probably don't. When you say hang on to scripture and tradition, uh, what do you mean so that someone who truly wants to take you up on your advice can do that? Well, what I mean by that is, first of all, I do think that that Catholics need to read the Bible. I love the idea of reading the Bible in a year. 
Uh, I did that a couple of years ago for like the third or fourth time, because I think it gives you a good big picture and it helps you see how God works in the world because you can't read the Old Testament without being like, wow, those Israelites were really messed up a lot. But yet you also say, wow, God was sure merciful and he sure was, he sure did guide them through all that. And that tells us today, same, we might feel the same way about our Israelites, but yet God is still there. So I think that's the first thing is read the sacred scriptures. I do think you need to obviously have good Catholic uh, interpretive guides. I mean, my favorite is the St. Paul Center run by Scott Hahn. I think what they do, I think they do great work and you can't go wrong with the, the stuff that they're putting out when it comes to reading the Bible, reading the sacred scriptures. So I think that's, first of all, that. And I think in tradition, re read things before Vatican II. And I'm not saying everything after Vatican II is bad. I just mean like when you read a papal document these days or encyclical or any church, I mean, every quote, every footnote is from Vatican II or after. We have, I mean, we're Catholics. We have... 2,000 years to go back on, not just 60 years. So read people like St. Pius X, read people like Gregory the Great. I mean, you know, just go back. I mean, read these great saints and, and, and theologians and popes and bishops, uh, and really it gives you more of a Catholic sense. So your Catholic radar, so to speak, that instinct will say, wait, this doesn't really jibe. It doesn't make you like, I'm not trying to make you your own pope, but you are saying, okay, if some individual today says something that sounds wrong, you're probably right that it is wrong. If you've got, if you really based yourself in reading sacred scripture, and 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 reading the the traditions of the of the church and and the fathers and the doctors and the theologians and popes from previous generations. Beautiful. So, Eric, you're also an author. We want to plug your latest work. What is that? And um, tell us about that. Where people can find you. Um, and uh, how people can be in touch. So my latest book is Deadly Indifference, which is basically about how religious indifference is has been creeping into the church for years and threatening the mission of the church. And it really is coming to us through the ecumenical movement and the interreligious dialogue movement, which threatens to undermine our own understanding of who we are as Catholics and the mission of the Catholic Church. Eric Sammons, thank you so much for joining us. Can you uh, be, would you be open to coming back on? Oh yeah, I'd love anything I can do to help you guys out and, and support you. I, like I said, I love what you're doing, so I'd be happy to. Awesome, thank you so much, Eric. God bless you. God bless you, and God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect